Wow, I thought to myself. The room was packed. I was on stage at our all-hands meeting, looking over a crowd of 700 Zappos employees who were standing up cheering and clapping. A lot of them even had tears of happiness streaming down their faces. 48 hours ago, we had announced to the world that Amazon was acquiring us. In July 2009, a man sells a company for $1.2 billion. It's a company he spent the past decade building, and one that has revolutionized how we buy things on the internet. At just 35 years old, he's instantly among the world's richest people. But he sees himself as more than just a business mogul. We knew that it wasn't just about building a business. It was about building a lifestyle that was about delivering happiness to everyone. He's a purveyor of happiness. He's not just a boss, but a kind of guru. Working for him isn't work, it's a way of life. This philosophy makes him a celebrity in the worlds of tech and entrepreneurship. One of our core values is to create fun in a little weirdness. We really recognize and celebrate each person's individuality. We want their true personality to shine in the workplace. And before long, he'll take these values and apply them to something much greater than a single company. It will come to define a whole movement. So who is this pivotal figure? His name is Tony Shea, internet wunderkind, CEO of Zappos, and a man called fascinating, brilliant, and inspiring by Bill Clinton. But who is Tony Shea really? And how did he get here? I'm Nastran Tavakolifar, and from Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, this is The Cost of Happiness. Episode 2, Early to the Party. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the -the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So before we get to the billion-dollar deals and the theories of happiness, let's go back to middle America in the 1970s. Tony was born in 1973 in Urbana, Illinois, a quiet college town surrounded by Midwestern plains and cornfields. Here he is reading from his memoir. My only memories of that period of my life were jumping off a diving board that was 12 feet high and catching fireflies. His parents, Richard and Judy, are immigrants from Taiwan. His mom's a social worker, his dad is a chemical engineer, and he's got two younger brothers, Andy and Dave. When Tony's five years old, the family trades flatlands for the coastal hills of Marin County, just north of San Francisco in California. There weren't a lot of Asian families living in Marin County, 
But somehow, my parents managed to find all ten of them. The kids would watch TV while the adults were in a separate room socializing and bragging to each other about their kids' accomplishments. This was just part of the Asian culture. In Marin County, a stone's throw from Silicon Valley, Tony gets his first taste of entrepreneurship. Even as a kid, he shares his mother's desire to help others and his dad's love of science and maths. But rather than following in their footsteps, Tony wants something else. He wants to get rich. I always fantasized about making money, because to me, money meant that later on in life, I would have the freedom to do whatever I wanted. And on his ninth birthday, he has an idea. He asks his parents to take him to a worm farm in the area. This is a place that raises worms to sell for composting and soil health. It's the best performing worm farm in the U.S. As he walks around the farm, Tony comes up with an ingenious plan. He wants to be the farm's biggest competitor, and he'd start by using their own worms against them. My parents paid thirty-three dollars and forty-five cents for a box of mud that was guaranteed to contain at least one hundred earthworms. Tony returns home and begins to build his own worm farm in his backyard. Instead of filling it with sand, I filled it with mud and spread the hundred plus earthworms around so they could slither freely and make lots of little baby earthworms. Nine-year-old Tony has heard that some of his favorite athletes are on a raw egg diet, so he dumps eggs on top of the worms, covers them, and waits for them to grow. After a week, Tony checks on his worms. They're gone. It seems his local birds have had a feast. Tony is crushed, but undeterred. Like many great innovators, failure only makes him more determined. If Thomas Edison was still alive, he could have stopped by my house and encouraged me with his perspective on failure. Thomas Edison once said, "I failed my way to success." Ambitious young Tony quickly comes up with new business ideas. There's the Gobbler, a magazine containing stories and puzzles Tony's written himself. Unfortunately, it only sells four copies. Tony then decides to sell Christmas cards door to door. The only problem with that, well, it's August. That doesn't work either. Next, he buys a kit which allows him to turn photos into pins or buttons. He begins to sell them through mail order and even pays for an advertisement in the local paper. It works. Soon, Tony's making over two hundred dollars a month—a serious amount for any preteen in the 1980s. He's delighted with his first business success, but after a year, he gets bored. His brother takes over the company, and Tony focuses on high school. When Tony's assigned to write a 14-line sonnet, he decides to write it in Morse code. Now, Tony's teachers are impressed, and it looks like they have a promising student on their hands. They encourage Tony to take a class in Pascal, which is an early programming language. In that class, Tony recalls discovering something called the bulletin board system. It's a piece of software that connects users over a shared server, and it's pretty difficult to use. It was the pre-internet version of Craigslist. Anyone could leave a message, post an ad, start a discussion, download files, or join in on a debate on a wide range of topics. It was amazing being able to join in discussions with strangers from Seattle, New York, and Miami. 
we suddenly had access to an entire world that we didn't know existed before. Tony is mesmerized. There's a whole universe out there, inside a screen, that transcends time and space. And only a few people have access to it. And he's one of them. In his senior year, Tony's technical talent lands him a job with a computer programming company called GDI. This involves writing software that allows government agencies and small businesses to fill out forms on a computer instead of by paper. In 1991, Tony is accepted into Harvard University to study computer science, his parents' dream. But at Harvard, he grows restless and dissatisfied. He misses running his own businesses. One evening, his buddy Sanjay shows him something. As the end of my senior year in college approached, Sanjay introduced me to this thing called the World Wide Web. I thought it was pretty interesting and a fun thing to explore at the time, but I didn't pay too much attention to it. Well, not yet. After graduating in 1995, Tony and Sanjay get jobs at Oracle, which, of course, today is one of the biggest and most important software companies on Earth. They're earning good money, but after a few months, they feel a bit stuck. Is this it? Tony wants to return to what he's always loved, being an entrepreneur. But where to start? The World Wide Web was starting to become more and more popular. Sanjay was really good at graphic design, so maybe we could start something on the side where we could create websites for other companies. After vowing to start a company together, they both quit Oracle. They do pretty well building websites. But Tony has another idea up his sleeve, and it will change his life forever. We are entering the information age, and the Internet is a great place to move tons of information at the speed of light. The fastest growing part of the Internet is the World Wide Web. At the start of the 90s, only 2.3% of the U.S. population is on the Internet. Unless you're a techie, it's pretty impenetrable. This is until the introduction of Mosaic in 1993, a user-friendly Internet browser. With this, more and more people start to catch on. With interest rates low and the internet on the rise, investors start to plow millions of dollars into new online businesses like Netscape, a search engine, and GeoCities, an early social media platform. The value of these companies skyrockets. It's 1996, and it's a perfect time for Tony and Sanjay to start their next business, Link Exchange. Link Exchange is a sharing system to help companies without a budget for advertising. You place another site's link on your site, usually on a links page, and in return, the other site places a link on their site back to you. It sounds bafflingly simple, but back in the day, it was revolutionary, and it works. In a couple of years, Link Exchange transforms from a group of Sanjay and Tony's friends into a full-fledged operation with hundreds of staff. But, again, as the company grows, Tony gets antsy. He wants to sell. In 1998, Tony and Sanjay sell Link Exchange to Microsoft for $265 million. From a failed worm business at age nine to one of the most successful tech entrepreneurs in the U.S. at age 25, Tony's dream has come true. 
Except it seems, as with every other successful juncture in his life so far, Tony remains unsatisfied. A nagging voice in the back of my mind repeatedly brought up the same question, now what? What's next? In 1999, a young man who'd been working for early internet companies in California finds himself out shopping for a pair of desert boots. His name is Nick Swinman. Store after store, mall after mall, I couldn't find the pair I was looking for. If I couldn't find shoes worth buying in the Bay Area, I could only imagine the kind of trouble people had elsewhere. This frustration leads to an idea. Why not begin an online shoe store, which gives customers far more choice? Swinman calls the store Zapos, after Zapatos, the Spanish word for shoes. The company would act as a kind of middleman, collecting orders from customers and then having other companies fulfill those orders. The idea is to form partnerships with hundreds of brands and to connect the shoes in their warehouses to customers directly. The only problem is Swinman needs investment. He's pretty inexperienced, so everyone he asks doesn't take him too seriously. Plus, the idea of buying shoes online sounds crazy. How do you know they'll fit? It's a little hard to imagine now, but back then, in the late 1990s, 99% of us didn't buy products on the internet. I mean, back then, even Amazon was still only a weird little online bookstore. The more books you order from Amazon.com, the more they get to know you and they make personal recommendations. If you said online shopping was going to become the norm, most people would probably think you were nuts. But Nick Swimman persists. After failing to find any takers, he calls a young new investor on the scene, Tony Shea. Flush from the sale of Link Exchange, Tony's just started a venture capital firm called Venture Frogs. He sees it as a way to be creative again and to nurture new ideas and to work with his mates. Swinman pitches the idea to Tony. To me, it sounded like the poster child of bad internet ideas. Other companies were selling pet food and furniture online and losing large sums of money in the process. But then, Tony digs a bit deeper. Footwear was a $40 billion industry in the United States, and 5% of that was already being done by paper mail-order catalogs. I did some quick math and realized that 5% was equal to $2 billion. So, Tony takes a leap and he invests $2 million in Zappos. The early days of the business do not go well. If Zappos doesn't find more investors, it'll soon have to shut down. Nick is scrambling. He calls Tony and asks for more money to keep Zappos afloat for a few more months. Tony agrees on one condition. He will have greater control over Zappos' business decisions and Zappos' employees will work out of Tony's loft in San Francisco. The company's saved, at least for now. It's described as nothing short of breathtaking, a points drop never before seen on the US market. This is affecting hundreds of millions of people already. This is going to affect billions of people. It's going to change economics. As soon as one person called stop, it just, just came apart. Most internet companies will fail. It's the gambler's, sorry, trader's job to pick the winners and avoid the splat of a bursting bubble. In the midst of the frenzy, there was no one yet willing to blow a whistle. 
too many people were getting rich. We're now skydiving without a parachute. I just hope we land on something soft. In early 2000, panic strikes Silicon Valley. The dot-com bubble, which had been growing for years in this early internet era, has officially burst. With interest rates on the rise and many tech companies making little profit or even making a loss, investment begins to decrease dramatically. It's becoming impossible for a lot of companies to stay afloat. Tony invests more money in Zappos and takes over as CEO in 2000. But the company, it continues to lose money. And Tony's money is running out too. Despite this, he's still motivated to turn Zappos around. Was I just a dot-com lottery winner who happened to be in the right place at the right time? I felt that I needed to prove to myself that the financial success of Link Exchange was not a fluke. Two years later, Tony is sitting in a bar with a friend. He's tried his best, but there's no denying it. He's upset. The Zappos dream looks over. Then, an idea pops into his head. Instead of acting as the middleman, why doesn't Zappos just buy the stock and control the inventory? This is the last roll of the dice. Tony liquidates all his assets and borrows thousands of dollars from the bank. He plows everything he has into buying stock of shoes, hiring a buying team, and finding a new office in Nevada. So close to California, but with cheaper rent and more space. Slowly but surely, sales begin to rise. By the end of the year, Zappos is growing. But this only helps mitigate the existing debt. Tony wants to transform Zappos into a truly great company. Out one day, he stumbles on a book. It's called Good to Great by Jim Collins. One of the things he found from his research was that the great companies have a greater purpose and bigger vision beyond just making money or being number one in a market. The book inspires Tony to radically change the company culture at Zappos, and he looks to his own personality for inspiration. Basically, he turns Zappos into a place where he'd want to hang out. Sales associates, dressed as barmaid. How's everyone doing? Are you being safe? Spider-Man in the cafeteria. Go! Racing toy cars in the middle of the office. This might look like chaos, but there is method to the madness. Walk into the office of a big tech company today and you'll likely see workers relaxing on beanbags or playing ping pong and a fridge stocked with beer. Gone are the days of the stiff suit and tie. Work is now meant to be fun. And this all began with Tony Shea. In 2003, after moving the company to Nevada, Tony sets in motion a total reinvention. He decides that a fun environment where employees can be themselves leads to a happy one. And a happy workforce is a productive one. Owen Carver began working at Zappos' call center in 2004. He's a web developer, a digital entrepreneur, and a part-time coffee roaster. And Owen's thoughtful nature and his passion for exciting new ideas made him the perfect fit for Tony's new vision. I grew up in Iowa in a small uh, industrial town, and uh, my father was the head of uh, one of the larger corporations there, which my father sold in 2007 for about a billion dollars. Being around his dad's business growing up, Owen became fascinated with company culture. His model is based on W. Edward Deming, which is 
the focus is that you realize that the more every person in the company has agency to communicate and to understand everything else going on, essentially the, the better educated they are about the entire process. After meeting Tony, Owen knew he'd found someone who shared his father's ideals. It did make me feel special and it made me feel like a little bit like this person is more accessible or they have a, a little bit more of an enlightened leadership. This feeling was confirmed when Owen first saw the Zappos office. They've got like a fool's ball table in the break room and everyone was kind of dressed up like skater guys and everyone had smiles on their faces and people would dress up and bring out their kind of weird uniqueness and be their funny, zany self. A refreshing change from your typical workplace. We're all just having fun. We know the company's doing well, is making money, and we're not being we're not being watched, you know, in the call center for like some kind of performance metric. Like as long as you're making customers happy. With a mandate to be themselves and to have fun, Zappos employees become well-known for going above and beyond the call of duty. CLT stands for Customer Loyalty Team. While Steve's job included answering customer queries over the phone, he took it a few steps further. Evidently, Steve and the customer just really got along. My name is Steve Weinstein, and I'm in the Zappos CLT department. The call that I took was actually 10 hours and 43 minutes. After we had placed the order, the business part was over. And then the connection just got even stronger. We talked about everything from vacations to restaurants to places we've been to. A marathon gap fest with a customer, a pizza delivery to someone who mentioned they were hungry, a bouquet of flowers sent over to a customer who just lost his pet. Tony brands this style of customer service, wow. Tony says, quote, To wow, you must differentiate yourself, which means do something a little unconventional and innovative. Basically, he's saying be a human. Don't be too rigid and don't follow a script. This becomes the core focus of Zappos, and it extends to all aspects of the business. Zappos offers free returns, free shipping, and a generous window to send back unwanted shoes. Now, whilst this is common today, Zappos was the first place to do it. The goal is to make the online shopping experience easy, yes, but also enjoyable and memorable. Shoppers love it. We were really focused on trying to deliver the best customer service and customer experience to make customers happier. Zappos wins legions of devoted fans, and the company's approach completely changes how we shop online. Four years and a lot of race cars, beanbags and Spider-Man costumes later, his approach proves to be wildly successful. Zappos hits $1 billion in annual sales in 2008. Tony has finally managed to bring a sense of purpose and meaning to his work. He's not just making money, he's running a company that makes people happy, both employees and customers. And it turns out that happiness is also good for business. But as we know by now, Tony's rarely satisfied for long. His wheels start turning again. He begins to think about ways he can spread this philosophy beyond Zappos. Day by day, it would be different. You just never know. 
he'd probably have, you know, 10, 20 ideas a, a day or a week, whatever. But, you know, one of them will stick. The other ones would be like, are you freaking crazy? This is Jen Lim. She and Tony meet in the early 2000s. She's been working in tech and she and Tony travel in similar circles. I remember very distinctly because it was his birthday. And my first impression of him wasn't great <laughs> because I walked in, you know, all these people. And I remember the DJ saying, all the ladies in the house, you know, come up to the DJ booth and say happy birthday to Tony. And I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> that whole feeling of not another dot-commer millionaire dude that's like, you know, stereotypical. That soon changes. And the next time I met him, I really got a, a deeper sense of who he is. And just, yeah, from that point, uh, we just connected on many different levels of being able to talk about anything and everything without boundaries. They quickly become close friends. And in 2003, Jen begins working as a consultant for Zappos. I've always been a consultant, actually. I got spit out by the first dot com. I got laid off. And I started exploring because I was really not wanting to go back to that world. You know, people lost a lot of money or made a lot of money. There was a lot of greed. There was a lot of just erosion, I think, of just values. Jen and Tony are both searching for more sustainable ways of working and of finding purpose in life. There was this whole wave of books out there about positive psychology and scientific happiness. And so we kind of started geeking out on that. It's just like, wait, these things, these existential questions that we were asking this whole time, there's actually a science to it, and it's called happiness. These conversations prompt Tony to begin writing his own book about the topic. See, he tested a philosophy of happiness in a corporate environment, and it had worked, so why not share it with the world? People would always be asking, what is the secret sauce of Zappos? How is it they're so successful, and why are they so happy? With Jen's help, Tony publishes Delivering Happiness, a path to profits, passion, and purpose. The book is an instant global hit. In it, he specially credits Jen as his longtime friend, backup brain, and project manager of the entire book writing process. We wanted to do something different for the book launch. Didn't want to do the typical, you know, let's fly from bookstore to bookstore. And so we decided to buy a bus and decided to do this country tour. We went all around in a circular fashion and visited, like, I think it was 30 cities. And it was so intense. And people were just loving it and just, you know, really wanting to embrace it. And that's uh, going to really reveal to us what we're doing. It was not selling a book. It was just opening up people's minds and to, to a new way of working and therefore living. The book then got eventually translated. I think we're at 25 languages now. How it become more of a global phenomenon and therefore demand for what it could mean. After the success of the book, Tony and Jen start the Delivering Happiness Institute. This is a consulting firm which helps businesses improve company culture and they say leads to more profits as well as employee and customer satisfaction. How many of you in the audience feel you know how to predict your long-term sustainable happiness in your own life? Lim remains the CEO of the company to this day and she's written her own book which is called Beyond Happiness. When we started testing a lot of our different concepts and putting in frameworks to be able to... Like, take the academic side of scientific happiness and put it in frameworks as practical ones for organizations. So 
with the right team and a, a lot of uh, grit, we got through to get to a place that we were actually able to prove that these models worked across countries and across you know, industries and sizes of companies. Hello, my name is Jeff Bezos. The founder of Amazon. Zappos is a company that I have long admired, and for a very important reason. Zappos has a customer obsession, which is so easy for me to admire. In 2009, Amazon buys Zappos for $1.2 billion. Tony continues as CEO. That same year, he revises Zappos' mission statement. Its stated goal now is to deliver happiness to the world. Now, that's a lot loftier than simply selling shoes. And soon, a lot of other big tech leaders are speaking a similar language. We can create a sense of purpose for everyone by building community. Like Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. Community, meaning and purpose are becoming central to how many companies think about themselves. They're not just offering services. They're tapping into our biggest existential questions. Now, I strongly remember this shift. Back then, I was in my mid-twenties, and I was experiencing an existential crisis of my own. It seemed that this scene wasn't just interested in selling things, but in answering the bigger questions about life. Tech events, well, they were as much about finding meaning through work as they were about the product. People seemed to have a higher purpose than simply profit. For my generation, those traditional forms of togetherness, like going to church or temple or working at the same company for life, well, these were falling by the wayside. So we had to look elsewhere. Now, this is something the tech world understood and capitalized on. Airbnb wasn't just a platform. It was a community. WeWork wasn't just a row of desks. It was a place to find your tribe. I mean... Who doesn't want that? Tony and other tech leaders really seem to be onto something. So what next? Even after writing a book and creating a happiness consulting firm, Tony still has itchy feet. He doesn't want to just build companies according to his principles of happiness. He wants to build worlds. In 2010, Tony announces he's going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in downtown Las Vegas to turn it into, quote, the happiest city on planet Earth. He calls it the Downtown Project. His idealistic ambitions have gotten him pretty far, but this is on a different scale altogether. So could this tech whiz make a difference in the real world? Or would his dream go the way of his worm farm? That's next time on The Cost of Happiness. The Cost of Happiness is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is reported and hosted by me, Nastran Tavakolifar. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producer is Jason Hoke. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. The series producer is Charlie Towler. The story editors are Mira Sharma and Matt Willis. Thomas Curry is the managing producer. Audio recording by Kathleen Conti at CDM Sound Studios in New York. Audio mix and sound design by Charlie Brandon King. Audio of Tony Shea comes from his audiobook, 
Delivering Happiness, a path to profits, passion and purpose. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.